Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Um, yeah, Ephesians chapter 2. So let's start in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this night to um, study this text. And I pray that uh, you'd open our hearts, Father, as we look at this. There's just so much here. It's hard to get it all. It's hard to know what to talk about, what not to. But I pray that uh, you'd guide our discussion and guide our time in your word. And we just thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. All right, in Ephesians chapter 1, we discussed the whole issue of uh, God's sovereignty and election. And of course, there's all kinds of different opinions on that. And you'll have to work through and come up with your own. However, as we go on into chapter 2, we, uh, we talked last week a little bit about this whole notion of spiritual death. Um, we talked about whether faith precedes regeneration or regeneration precedes faith, if you remember. And of course, there are many different views of that. Um, and by the way, you need to understand this because somebody may not have the same view you do doesn't make them a heretic. All right? Because probably what's going to happen is we'll get to heaven and find out all of us were wrong to some degree. Um, the salvation process is still a mystery. Um, it's a very deep mystery, and we don't have all those answers. But um, in chapter 2, Paul talks about us being made alive, and you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And uh, what we see there is an external agency, namely God, acting on us to make us alive. And if you just look at that passage, what it appears to be saying, I think correctly so, is that the operative power in any salvation is God, not you. And uh, what we like to do today is we like to make it us and not God. And I think what we need to do is get back to a biblical understanding that ultimately it is God who draws men to himself. It's God who regenerates. It's God who turns the light on. It's God who does the work. And uh, when you don't get this, you have all kinds of little theological issues that fall out of this. Um, for example, when you look at a lot of our modern-day evangelistic methods, most of them are based in, a, in sort of a... And understand, it's, it, they may not just come out and say it, but certainly implied that somehow it's up to you to talk the person into salvation. It's up to you somehow to be more effective. And the idea is if you're more effective, you can lead more people to Christ that otherwise would not come to him. And I think that's a very bad view of things. Um, it's one thing to become more effective in, your, in our ability to communicate. But nothing we do is going to make one person come to Christ who would not otherwise do so. Um, no amount of effort on our part is going to force somebody into the kingdom. Um, you know, you remember some of the old, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, denominations that you almost drag the person down front. You know, you want somebody to come a Christian, you drag them down front, throw them on the pew, and tell them to pray the prayer, and they pray it. And, then you congratulate them on being in the kingdom. Well, they may not be in the kingdom at all. I mean, unless God moves in their heart, nothing will happen. And um, I think what we have today is a lot of man-made converts and not many God-made converts. You know, you want, you want the God-made convert kind. You don't want the man-made. Um, 
And what happens is I think a lot of times we, we think that somehow we're going to manipulate people into the kingdom, and it just doesn't work. Now understand, we don't mean by that that um, we don't try to communicate the gospel in a better and a fresher way. Um, it does not mean that we, you know, just sort of retreat into our little monasteries and say, well, you know, we believe in sovereignty of God, and if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved, so we'll wait for them to knock on our door and ask how to become a Christian. Christ didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. They went out to evangelize the lost. And in this whole sovereignty of God thing, debate, you need to understand that although it is God who does the saving, God uses you and God uses me to carry out his sovereign will. And so there's no room for fatalism. There's no room to just sort of let God do it all and just take it easy. Because after all, if they're elect, they'll get there. Um, there's no place for that kind of thinking. And it says here, you, He hath made alive who were dead, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, and the sons of disobedience. I want you to note a very important word there, and that's the word once. Verse 2. Once you walked according to the course of this world. That used to be the way you walk. Now in the Bible, whenever you see the term walk, it's talking about manner of life, what you are, what defines you, your character. And what it's saying is those of us who are believers, we once walked according to the course of the world. At one time, we lived like the pagan society around us. That's the way we were, but that's not the way we are. And that's a very important thing to understand because there's many who teach today that you can be a Christian and have no difference in your life. You can be a Christian and have no change. You can be, after all, if you just come forward and take Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're in. Now, the way you live your life and your manner of life is irrelevant after that. You're in. And the Bible teaches that those who are in are going to evidence their inness by the way they live, not by nothing. There's a difference in your life. And he says, you once walked according to the course of this world. Once we were like a believer. So what that tells us is there's a very sharp distinction between the way the world is and the way we are to be. And we're going to see this really borne out in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Once you were like this, now you're like this. Act like it. And it says not only do we walk according to the course of this world, but we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, who's that? Satan. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who are those? Who are the sons of disobedience? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. All right. Paul is saying we used to be, okay, and, and think about it. If you want to think about it, think about it this way. Um, he's drawing a contrast between dead and alive. Okay? God made us alive. Now when we were dead, what was our character like? Well, um, we were characterized by the world. In other words, we walked according to the course of this world. In other words, and what does it mean to walk according to the course of the world? What's that mean? 
Well, it's more than that. There's no difference in our lifestyle and what we do for fun and what we do all the time than people who don't know God. Yeah, what it means is, is your values and the things that are important to you are the same things that are the values and the important things to this world. And what's important to this world? What's important to the people in this world? Wealth, fame, pleasure, self. If that characterizes you, you're walking according to the world. That's, that's your character. That's what you're like. Not only were we characterized by the world, but it says we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, our, we were, not only did we walk according to the course of this world, but in a sense we were controlled. I, I don't want to use, I'm going to put the word controlled there in parentheses because it's not like the devil made you do it. When you sin, you sin because you want to sin, not because Satan makes you sin and you can't help it. But you were controlled, in a sense, by Satan. And what we mean by controlled is that the things that motivated us are the same things that motivated Satan. And what motivates Satan? Self. Sin. Our character was, when you looked at us, you looked at Satan, and you look at the world, there was no difference when we were dead in our sins. We were controlled by the prince of the power of the air. The things that were important to the world are important to us. And not only that, but the Bible calls us something very interesting. He says we are sons of disobedience. In other words, our very nature is to disobey God. That's our nature. That's what we are. The average pagan out there, they are disobedient to God because that is their character. That's who they are. Now that's a distinction to what we ought to be. We're not sons of disobedience. We should be sons of obedience. We should obey. But the character, he's trying to point out the character of one who walked according to the course of this world and to make the distinction that this is what you once were. This is what you used to be like. You're not like that anymore. You're different. Why? And why are you different? Because you woke up one day and decided that it would be a good thing to change your lifestyle? No, it's because he made you alive who were dead. God made you, he quickened you, made you alive. And among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Here's some more characteristics. We conducted ourselves in lust of flesh. Um, we were con in a sense, we were controlled by our desires. And, and the word there really means the, the, the passions of the flesh. We were controlled by that. Now, is that true of the world today? Is that true of the pagan? Is that true of him? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> the world, the world is controlled by their fleshly desires. Why is it the TV is getting so bad? Because it's controlled by a bunch of people who are controlled by their own desires. Now you see, I think what I hope you start seeing is this is what it used to be and the opposite of this should be true of believers. 
It should not, we should not be characterized by these things. We should be characterized by other godly attitudes. And that says here, we conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So not only we're controlled by desires, but we fulfilled those desires. Evil desires. And I think there's something very important here. And I find it true in my life. And the older I get, the more I'm finding it true. If you deal with a battle for your mind, it's a lot easier to deal with the battle of the flesh. All right? It's a lot easier. It doesn't make it non-existent. I'm just telling you it's easier. All right? What you put into your mind is going to come out in your life. I mean, that's just the way it is. And when you fill your mind with some of the stuff that you see going on in the world today, what do you expect? should come out, but the same stuff. And the world is characterized by these evil desires. They're characterized by that. And um, it's really, this really, this was really made real to me in, in a sense because I remember I, a long time ago, this is when I was, a long time ago, um, about 25 years ago, somewhere around there, I, uh, a friend of mine and I, we were going to go out and we were going to just go enjoy ourselves for an evening. And we picked up this other guy that he worked with who called himself a Christian. I mean, he, he went to church. He carried a, a big Bible, really big Bible. And he went to church. And he wore a white shirt and a tie, you know, and always looked like, you know, he was a real Christian. And I remember when we picked him up, you know, the, the question is, oh, well, what would you like to do tonight? And he says, well, I saw some of these neat X-rated movies. Let's go watch one. Well, we didn't, so I'll just tell you that right now, we didn't, but he's sitting there talking about this as though, what's the big deal? Now, what does that tell you about his spiritual condition? There's no connection at all to Christ. What was he characterized by? Yeah, he's controlled by the world, by the desires of this world. And I guess that, that's, a real, that's a real question you need to ask yourself. Are you controlled by the desires of this world? And how you get controlled by that is you feed on it. And so what you have to do is you have to be very careful not to feed on those things. Because it says here, you, the, the, the character of those who are dead, if you want to know what a pagan is like, this is the pathology of a pagan. This will tell you what the lost person is like. They are characterized by the world. What they value is what the world values. They are controlled by Satan in the sense that their entire thought process, all the things that they value, where is that coming from? It's coming from Satan. They are sons of disobedience. They couldn't obey God if they wanted to. That's the character of their life. They're controlled by their own passions and desires. They and, and not only are they controlled by that, they fulfill those. They fulfill those desires. And then it says here, and they were by nature the children of wrath. What does it mean by that? Children of wrath. What wrath do you think it's talking about? 
Pardon? The wrath of God. And how's that wrath going to be most evidenced? Like a fire. What's their character? Their character is those who are destined for damnation. They are children of wrath. They are children of wrath. And by the way, just so you don't feel too good about yourself, what did you used to be? You used to be one of those. Well, you, you were all of them. That's what you used to be. And what Paul is saying here, he wants to help us understand that it is God's divine power, and that's all it is. It's not because you woke up and made a choice for God. It's God's divine power that reverses this stuff. Because in and of yourself, you couldn't reverse one of those if you wanted to. You can't do it. In and of yourself, you lack the power. You lack the ability to do that. Not only that, you lack the desire. You lack the desire. He said, you used to be that, but God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which we loved us. Why did God do something? And he was motivated in part by his love for us. Now, you know, and you've got to understand, before you start thinking again too highly of yourself, you think, well, that means there was something in me that was lovable. The Bible says there's nothing in you that's lovable. There's absolutely nothing in any one of us that would make God love us. Why did God love us? Because God is, God is love. That's why. See, we've got people that say, well, God loved me because I'm a nice person. Uh-uh. God loved me because uh, I'm this or I'm that. No. See, we're all, you know, it's like one piece of coal calling another piece of coal black. We're all so indescribably evil that really, from, from perfection's viewpoint, none of us are really any different than anybody else. From God's eternal, divine, perfect viewpoint, there's no difference between you and Hitler. We're all equally evil. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul echoes the same idea over in Romans chapter 5. He uses the argument from the greater to the lesser. A very common argument. And in Romans 5 his argument says, God loved you when you were his enemy. See, before you were a believer, I don't care whether you're elect or not, is irrelevant. Before you were saved, what were you? God's enemy. That's the bottom line. You were not God's friend. You were God's enemy. And when you were God's enemy, what did he do? He died for you. So now that you're his friend, and that's the argument in Romans chapter 5, now that you're saved, what's he going to be able to do? Keep you. 
See, this whole idea, I don't know how anybody can get this notion that you can lose your salvation. I really, you know, there's just so many Bible verses and Bible passages that just shoot holes in that whole theory of losing your salvation. I don't know how anybody could come up with it. He's basically saying there, if God did the tough thing of dying for you and you're his, his enemy, what's he going to do now that you're his friend? That's the easy part, right? Because then it would mean we'd have to earn it. Yeah. You can't earn it. God's going to keep you. But the thing to understand that Romans 2 is saying is that the, the, this whole salvation process is started by God. It's, it's, it's started by Him. He's the one that makes the first move. And, and, the same, and the reason is, quite honestly, is that you are dead in trespasses and sin. In this state, you have no desire to do what God wants you to do. Not one. You lack the ability. You lack the desire to, you know, and again, it goes back to this whole thing. What do you mean by total depravity? The, the natural man does not want God for who God is. He wants what God may give, peace, joy, happiness, whatever. But he doesn't want God for God. He doesn't want him. God has to make the move. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. And not only that, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our positional exaltation. God, and he, what he's saying is this, God not only redeemed you, but then he raised you up and exalted you and made you sit with Christ in heavenly places. And, and the thing to understand is that as far as God is concerned, positionally, there's no difference between you and Jesus in the sense that God, that we are, his, we are joint heirs. Now, there's a big difference because Jesus is God and you're not. But God has made us all co-equal heirs with Christ. And why? What, what caused him to do that? Well, his great love wherewith he loved us. And his great mercy. And that point, I guess it's sort of bothered me. Um, is there a scripture that tells you how to deal with a person that says they're Christian, but they seem to be a devil advocate? A devil advocate, what do you mean? You might get a devil. Yeah, treat him like an unbeliever. You might, you might, what you say to encourage folks? This individual is going to come some negative stuff to tear your character down or just to find something wrong with anything. You know, well, they want to keep coming to church every Sunday. Can't get rid of those people, can you, Will? Um, it, it's like a burden you're going to bear to either one of you die. Either you die. You die. Well, you know, quite honestly, is that, is that sin or not? What that? Is that is that what they're doing sin or not? I will claim so because they're hindering others. Well, if it's sin, would you, how do you deal with sin? With somebody who says they're a believer? If they tell you to stick it in your ear, yeah, it's something like what do you do? Take two or three witnesses and we tell you all to get lost. What do you do? Church. Tell the church to get lost. What do you do? Yeah, Matthew 18 talks about that, Willie. 
I mean, I mean, how do you deal with sin in the church? Well, God told us. Go one-on-one. -on -one. If your brother listens, you've won your brother. If he ignores you, take two or three more. Go and, and, and confront him again. If he ignores you, take it to the church. And if he ignores the church, treat him as a tax collector in the public and put him out. Don't let him come to church. Don't let him come to your communion. Don't let him come to your, you know, your singings or whatever else it is that he may be ashamed. That's how you deal with sin. And the sad part about it, if there's an altar call prayer, it will not move. They're not even trying to come up with prayer. Well, the bottom, I think. So it seems like they Yeah. See, it, it, one of two things is true. Either one, they are a believer living in sin, or two, they're not a believer at all. Right. And how do, you, how do you tell the difference? You have to wait, fruit, take some time. But, but, but you say, well, I, I don't know if I could do church discipline because they may not be a Christian. I mean, does Matthew 18 apply to unbelievers? No, no it doesn't, all right. So how do you figure out whether you should use Matthew 18 or not. How do you know if they're a believer or not, though? You don't know if this guy's a believer. If he's an unbeliever, you... you ask, I mean, the Bible said treat nobody to be there. If you've been around this individual like 15 years, and they always have business rates, you're not getting worse. Well, the, you know, the question I'm is, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, how I would do it. I would say if, I would say I treat them as a Christian if they claim to be one. Now, if this person says, I am a Christian, they're not living like it. Okay, I, I will take, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and use church discipline. I mean, that's how I would do it. Because in doing church discipline, that individual, that's what I find out when we have in a lot of churches. They have friends, and their friends have friends, and then it's like, if, if, if you speak against them, you know, even if they're wrong, right, it's like a group that goes with them and say, you know what? If they, well, then you've got a bigger problem, and maybe, you know, maybe you need to open that can of worms. Yeah, take much prayer to deal with some of these things because... And been a whole position but, in the church. It was only John MacArthur was preaching, I think it was one of the pastor conferences at Moody. I got this from Gordon Fawcett who was here. He got the tape from the thing. And he says, really interesting because John, John MacArthur stood up and he, he told, you know, there's all these pastors from all over the country. And he said, he, he said um, let me tell you what the number one hindrance to, a, to an effective church is. You know, of course, everybody, you know, they wanted to hear this because here's a guy who has a 10,000 members in his church or something like that. You know, and they're waiting for some secret, you know, uh, tidbit. And he says, you know, the number one hindrance to ministry is a lack of church discipline. Mm -hmm. And Gordon says that entire, that you can hear that nobody said a word. Because what happens is there's a lot of pastors today, they don't want to do that. See, it's not loving to discipline somebody, is it? Or I mean, that's what that's what the mentality is. <laughs> don't don't rock the boat. Don't open that. You know, who are you to judge? You know, all kinds of stuff come in. But he said the number one problem is sin in the church, and and if you don't deal with sin in the church, it'll rot you. 
There's a difference, brother Sam. Remember, God to tell you. <laughs> I say across the pulpit, you know what I mean? Because I just, I'm, I'm a firm believer that a lot of times I need a hair raiser every now and then, just to be honest with you. Because I would forget to pray about a hair. And uh, so I'm dealing with that in the cup. I'm just saying, not now, but I'm dealing with that always because, you know, I heard uh, Charles Stanley say that a person, if you never had a problem, you would probably forget to pray before you even come into the sanctuary or uh, at the mm-hmm. church during the week because everything is going so smoothly. But I remember the story when the disciples came and told Jesus that among the weed that grew up in the garden, and, and Jesus says um, that he would separate. He said, an enemy had done this unto me. An enemy had done this unto me. He said, but don't worry about I'll separate the wheat from the tail. But sometimes we have to wait on the um, divine movement of God to take place um, in many instances. Uh, because, you know, we are really hypocrites in the church. Uh, that many of those in Matthew 21, uh, many hypocrites of people, uh, Matthew 6, I'm sorry, who, who say they're one thing but they're all together, something else. All I can tell you is this. When Christ was talking about the separation of the wheat and the tares, he was not talking about church discipline at that point. He was talking about the fact that ultimately, I can't really tell for certain if someone is or is not a Christian. All right. But he has told us very clearly that if someone claims to be a Christian, and that's the point, they claim, and they are in your church and they are acting in an ungodly manner. It is your responsibility. It's not an option. It's your responsibility to confront them. It's your responsibility to deal with that. It's not an option. God doesn't say, look, you know, if you feel like it, do something. Hmm. He, He commands it. And it's interesting, if you go over to Romans, now you keep saying Romans, Revelation chapter 1, where is Christ walking in Revelation 1? In the middle of the seven lampstands, which are the seven. And what is he doing? He's examining them, right? He is looking at them very carefully. And in fact, he has some things to say in chapters 2 and 3. And one of them is, if you don't do something, I'm going to bring a sword against you. And I think think we need to be very careful to understand that, that God has a very, very high desire for holiness in the church because that will be that will be directly proportional to how effective you are. Mm-hmm. And if you allow somebody who claims to be a Christian, again I keep going back to that, who claims to be a Christian, but live like Satan in your church and allow that to go on, you're going to lose your effectiveness in your church. It's just going to happen. That's just the way it is. And it's not you being judgmental. It's not you being awful or bad or anything like that. It's, hey, you claim to be a Christian, now act like it. That's all. Now, it doesn't mean you're a spiritual Gestapo. You know, when, when somebody has a bad hair day, you know, they have the deacons calling on them. You know, that's not, you know, we all have, except Willie and I, we don't have those. But, you know, if, you know every once in a while, things happen, you know. And th- I, I think what, what the thing is with, with the discipline in the church, it's um, a persistent pattern of disobedience. It's, it's not once, you know, this guy got mad at one point and then he felt sorry and he, he asked forgiveness. 
It's a man who's characterized by anger, a man who's characterized by gossip, a man who's characterized, like you said, negativity. Right. You know, that's, that's something you have to deal with. Yeah, Barb. I've learned too that um, in relationships or anything like that, you have to deal with things right when they happen. You can't let things go and go and go. It has to be dealt with right then and directly with that person and whoever else involved. Paul did that. You know, if you don't deal with it, it rots. I'll tell you what, I've, I've, been, around, I've been around the church now all my life. And every time nothing's been dealt with, it's rotted. Every time. You know, say, well, you know, if we just leave it alone, it'll get better. Doesn't work. I, it does not work. It rots. You got to deal with it. And Paul did. I mean, remember when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, I heard this, this guy out there that's living with his stepmother. And you know what? If you don't do something about it, when I come, I will. Right, right. All right. Now you're saying, well, Paul, you're being harsh, judgmental. No. I mean, it, it's pretty clear this guy's in sin. He's going to ruin the effectiveness of the church, the ministry of the church. You know, Willie, you know, what would happen if, uh, if it hit the newspapers that the head of your deacon board was a serial murderer? What would happen to the reputation of your church? Basically, people would have trust in the leadership. How could this happen? Don't, don't, don't ever get under the illusion that church discipline is not something that's important. I think what some pastors may be afraid of is that they don't want to rock the boat, they don't want to cause a problem, but in reality, if they don't, they'll only, they'll only grow eventually. Well, the question is, it goes back to Galatians 1. Do you want to please God or men? Right. Pick a pick. That's it. Just, just choose. Yeah, just choose which one you want to make happy. That's fine. Isn't that the responsibility of the pastor, though? I mean, in a sense, for a church? It's a responsibility of the pastor, but it's also a responsibility of you and me. Right, right. If somebody, if, if, I, if I see, if, if Willie and I are going to the same church, and I've seen Willie coming out of the adult bookstore on multiple occasions, I'm just picking something. All right. I'm not saying he does, but if I did, if I saw him do that, all right. What should I do? Run and tell the pastor? No. Talk to Willie first. I go talk to Willie first. Now, if Willie says, well, it's none of your business, then what do I do? Then I probably go get the pastor. And, all right. See, see, and what I'm trying to point out there is that it's my responsibility. When I see, when I see somebody doing something, a pattern, again, it's not, let me find somebody who's sinning so I can go jump them. All right, that's the, that's the whole problem with Galatians 6 where it says, do it in meekness, lest, considering yourself, lest you're also tempted. So you've got to have the right attitude, but I'm to, I'm to take that initiative. And I only involve the church leadership when I don't get anywhere one-on-one. -on -one. I don't go run and tell the pastor and let the pastor go beat on the person. I go one-on-one -on -one first. Now, if somebody comes to you and uh, here's a good question. If somebody comes to you, let's take the same thing, and uh, I'm not the godly person I think I should be, and I see Willie coming out of that store, and I go running to the pastor, tell Pastor Guess, I saw Willie coming out of the adult bookstore. As a pastor, what's the first thing you should ask me? Did you talk to Willie? 
That's the first thing to ask. Now, if I said no, what should you say? Go talk to Willie. Now, what should you do? As the pastor. You don't do anything. You don't do anything. You know how many times people want me to fight their battles for them? Yeah. I get really tired of that. Right. But people come to the deacon before they come to pastor. Yeah. Especially when they I had somebody come to me and say, when, when, I had somebody come to me and, and, and want me to get involved in something. I asked them, I said, well, did you go talk to the person? No. Why not? Well, they won't listen. Well, have you tried? No. But they won't listen. Have you tried to talk? No. And I told him, I said, well, it's not my problem. I got a question. What if it's someone else? Because there's a situation that I know about um, an individual in a different church. All right. Do you know this person? No. But I know one individual that does work. I mean, I know it's... So I think what it says there, I think the whole idea here is, is quite honestly... We could walk around and find all kinds of people doing all kinds of sins, and you'd do nothing but confront people. I mean, that's, that'd be your whole life. No, that's this, not what the Bible's no, this, talking this about. Is very, this is a very serious issue. Is that, it? That, where this particular person, where he's got a pattern of doing this, and he's kind of bouncing from church to church. Then, 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 you need to, then you need to warn the church he's bouncing to okay. what's going on. That's part of your responsibility. And quite honestly, we've done that at Open Door. Right. We had somebody, you know, because quite honestly, one of the ways you skip church discipline is you quit the church and go somewhere else and start over. And uh, we've made it a point here that, that we will contact the pastor. Now, if the pastor, you know, says, ah, oh, you're just a bunch of hard-hearted, you know, censorious Christians, okay, fine. You, you, you deal with the guy. But we've done our part. We've, we've done the right thing, you know. Um, but I think the point is you don't go through life trying to find everybody who's sinning so you can confront them. This is a person that you know. I think, I think the bottom line comes down to, this is somebody you know. This is, this is not just anybody. This is, this is somebody you have a relationship with. And we're to confront them. Yeah. I've been, you know, I grew up in the church and, uh, as a pastor's son. And uh, let's say I never had a problem, you know, with, with what people did. You know what I mean? Because I never... Had a problem because I felt like when I used to hear people say, Well, you know, the Bible said we're gonna die on so I wasn't the type of person who would always be in other folks' business because um, I would see it and tell them it's wrong, but I wasn't the type of person who was looking for a confrontation mm -hmm. because you know, you got a lot of people uh, who who uh, always ask people if they bring something to me, How did you know? Where were you? You know. Um, you could a person could have come out of the bar, and you were just passing by, and um, if you hadn't stopped the scene or to understand what was taking place, he could have been in ministry in the bar because he might have been delivered out of the bar. You never know because if you're there, that doesn't mean you are uh, you're engaging or igniting in the same thing mm -hmm. or something like that. So we cannot classify people as of the periphery that they're around. That's that's very yeah, important. and I th and I think that's a very important point that we can't. Jesus went everywhere. Yeah, you, you can't go you, you can't go around trying to just find something or create some offense. I think what the Bible talks about is this is a clearly defined 
pattern of, of disobedience over a period of time in which that person is not dealing with it. That's when that's when these things apply, you know. And and, and I think it's somebody that you know. It's not just mm -hmm. oh, I happen to see some somebody from another church come out of the bar. I'm going to go do church discipline. You can't. Life's way too short for that kind that's of stuff. Crazy thing, uh, Mr. Shaver. You know, it's just like you take the adulterous woman in the body. You, every time I read that, I would kill you. I used to think someone was crazy. What's that? Uh, the adulterous woman. Oh, okay. I, I always thought someone was very literate about the situation. Because if I'm sitting, I was sitting there reading, I said, what happened to the man? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to well, the, the thing to understand, that was a setup job. What happened to the man? That was a setup job. They were trying to set Christ up. I wasn't going to set that question. See. See that? You know, and then you look at people who was preachers in general, when they sought to kill Lazarus also, you know, a man who just respected, and those were chief priests. See, one of, the, one of the dangers that we need to understand, and I, I think this passage brings it out a little bit, is you need to understand where you came from. Right. Because the longer you're a Christian, the less you remember where you came from. And um, I'll tell you what. I've seen some pretty angry, unforgiving people in the church. And the thing I want to say to some of them is I want to, first of all, grab them around the neck and slap them to get their attention. And then I want to ask them, do you, do you remember where you came from? Because, see, we... we uh, it's easy to forget. And it makes us feel good to point the finger at somebody else. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Um, you got to remember that you came out of the pit. And see, that, that's what Galatians 6 is saying. When you find yourself needing to confront another individual, you do it with a spirit of meekness because you also are temptable. And uh, sometimes the very sin that you may condemn in others, you find yourself doing later. So we need to be very, very careful about that. Remember where you came from. But what Christ has done here is he's taken you out of all of these things and has exalted you and set you at his own right hand in heavenly places. And why did he do that? So that in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You are a trophy of God's grace. When we've been around heaven for a few billion years, and some were to ask, you know, well, what, what do you mean by God's grace? You should be able to point at yourself and say, here's an example of what God's grace is. I am. Because you don't deserve to be there. We deserve hell, we deserve damnation, we deserve judgment. We deserve absolutely nothing good from God. But God, who is rich in His mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, redeemed us, raised us up, set us in the heavenly places in Christ to display us as a trophy of grace. So when the angelic beings ask, God, what do you mean when you're a God of grace? God says, let me demonstrate it. And He pulls you off the shelf and says, look at this one here. And they say, oh, we get it to some degree. This is an example of grace. You're a trophy. And, and I think here's something else. This is something very humbling to you. 
God saved you because he wanted to. There's no doubt about that. Um, he just wanted to do that. But do you also realize that God did not save you for your own benefit? In the sense that God did not save me to keep me out of hell. He did not save me to uh, give me a fulfilled life. He saved me to display His grace. So quite honestly, who is the beneficiary, the primary beneficiary of my salvation? God is, not you. Now, now stop and think about that. Why did he save us to give us to, to make us a trophy? It doesn't say God saved us to keep us out of hell. I mean that that goes with it. He didn't save us to uh, so that we could love him. He saved us to display his grace to show us off as an object of mercy. And therefore, the primary beneficiary of your salvation is not you, but God. You're just incidental. Now that sort of puts you in a different spot, doesn't it? Because usually when we talk about salvation, what do we couch it in terms of come to Christ so that you can, and you fill in the blank. You want to be happy, you want to be fulfilled, you want be in heaven forever. I mean, I mean, all that stuff is great, wonderful, good. But that's not why God saved you. Those are just some of the benefits. Our personal benefits. God did not save you for your sake. He saved you for His sake. His glory. And how do, how do we display His glory? For In the ages to come, we show the angelic beings in all of creation what God's grace is by our very existence in heaven. The very fact that you're there. That's, that's grace. Okay. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and she asked me, um, why do play a part of this personality, uh, forgiveness and grace and mercy, which are things that angels cannot uh, yeah. comprehend because they don't understand it. It's not offered to them. Yeah, and, and the other thing to understand there is that when God created the angelic beings, we were in his mind. It wasn't like he created angels and says, well, you know, wait a minute, we haven't got this quite right here. We'll, we'll have to go with humans. It was all one eternal decree of God. And uh, the angels, you know, and well, it says it in Peter, it says the angels look into the salvation we have, and they don't understand it. Um, I think if, if God gave us a glimpse of heaven at the crucifixion, I think what we do is we see the angelic armies of heaven just waiting for the word. That's all they needed is one word. And if one angel wiped out 186,000 Assyrians, what would a legion of 144,000 angels do? They were waiting for the word because they, they, don't under, they don't comprehend grace. It's a mystery to them. And so for them to comprehend it, they have to examine a trophy. And that's what you are. And that's what I am. 
It's for God's glory. It's, for, it's, it's to bring glory to Him. It's to display His character. That's why God ultimately saved you. That's why God created the universe. It's not for our benefit, it's for His. And we've changed it around though today and we've made it all be our benefit. So mainly for when we die and go to heaven. Pardon? Mainly for when we die and go to heaven we glorify The whole end result is when we go to heaven we do glorify God in that we display but I'll tell you what, you can glorify God now. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. we get this, the person. And you know what you said, deliver from evil. From the evil. The type of thing. And, and, and Shaver, I'm grateful, and I'm serious, even though in, in my position, grateful to the teaching for the past month because uh, when I wasn't in the knowledge of Christ, I had a son, he's 10 years old, and I had an argument with his mother. She's in Mississippi, that's where I'm late today. He got killed in the car accident Saturday. And and we have been arguing back and forth of the uh, necessities of the kid and what we need to do because she wasn't present. And if it wasn't for God's grace, and if it wasn't for me hearing um, what had been taking place in the class, I would have probably um, went back and allowed her to see the other side of me. I probably would have acting on the law instead of experiencing and expounding on grace, you know. So I'm just saying God came to deliver us from the evilness. Also, that's the reason why I read that note of that. I had to stay in that word and deal with that. You know, they're just so much wrapped up. I mean I hope you get to understand if there's anything you learn in the classes that I teach is that the way you live is directly proportional to the theology you understand. Theology is not a dry, boring, you know, time to go to sleep exercise. It is very relevant. And what we have today is we have a mentality in church to say, you know, let's skip the theology and let's get right to the practicality. Well, I, I, I believe that you can't be practical unless you're theological. You, you don't know how to live unless you, there's a reason for that. Um, God gives us the reasons for that. Um, why is it that I want to live a holy life? God did not save me to live like the devil. Look at all the trouble he went through to redeem me. Now he tells me to go sin. That's not, that's not why God saved me, so that I could just sin. I'll forgive you anyway, just go have at it. He saved me to glorify him. And it's all of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Probably Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is some of the first verses you have ever learned. But do you understand what it's saying there? For by grace you have been saved. What is grace? God's unmerited, unearned forgiveness towards us. Who do, we don't deserve it. You, you, can't deser you haven't deserved it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. It's by grace. Now, the other thing to understand is that in every dispensation, every dispensation, that means every, every period of man's existence, salvation has always been by grace. It's never been by works, ever. Never. Now, how do, how do I appropriate 
that grace by faith. All right? So that grace is appropriated to me through faith. I believe. Now, where does that faith come from? It's a gift of God. That's what it says. You think you have the faith to believe God? No. If you believe God, if it was your faith, what kind of faith would that be? Shaken. It'd be easily shaken, wouldn't it? See, and see, this goes back again to this whole thing of eternal security. The grace that God gave you to believe Him is not does not have as its origin you. Why did Job stick with God? And where did that faith come from? It came from God. It didn't come from Job. It certainly didn't come from him. Why do you believe in heaven? You've never been there. Anybody been to heaven and back? No. And by the way, those guys on TV, they haven't been to heaven and back either. Just understand that. Somebody said I was wrong. I said yeah, but uh, the thing to understand is that you've never been to heaven. You've never seen Jesus. Have you ever talked to him one-on-one -on -one like I'm talking to you? We have faith, though. We can't see it, but we believe it. And why? Because faith is such a thing hopeful. And where does it come from? Where does that kind of faith come from? It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's not you. The point is, the faith that we have, that we exercise, ultimately has as its origin God's grace. God gives you the faith to appropriate the grace. So here's the thing. What do you contribute to your salvation? The only thing you bring to the salvation plate is your sin. That's your contribution is the problem. Everything else is of God. And see, and why did God make it that way? That's right. So you wouldn't get to heaven and say, well, I got here because. And that's what we would say. And it's exactly what we'd say. That's exactly. Don't, and by the way, you would. And the thing I'm understanding, the longer I'm, I'm a Christian, the more I'm understanding just how cruddy I am and how undeserving I am. And I am just... You know, I'm amazed beyond amazement that, um, that God would choose to touch me and give me this faith. And, and, see, and see, I want you to understand how this affects your theology. If you understand this, then you understand that that's an unassailable faith. You don't have to stay up at night worrying about if you're going to lose it or not. It's unassailable. It can't be lost. It can't be removed. This process can't be reversed. Do you think most people battle with the whole issue of losing salvation? I know I have. Probably everyone has, if they're honest. Do you think that's due to the fact that we just really don't know or understand like, the way that you're, you're explaining it? I think part of it is that. And part of it is we base it on emotions. Yeah. And your emotion goes up and down. You know, um, 
It says here, the grace that God has given me was given to me by faith, and it's not mine. It is a gift of God. And, and there's significant um, grammatical evidence to show that the it refers not only to the grace, but to the faith to believe. And then verse 9 just adds the other part of that, not of works lest anyone should boast. I mean, that just goes without saying. If you did something, you could boast. Right. And so what that says is this. If someone says, let me ask a question. How did you become a believer? You say, well, I believed God. Is that a true statement? Ultimately, it is not. Why are you saved? Because you believe God? I mean, certainly we believe God. I mean, but where, but where does the ability to believe God come from? From God. All right. The point is, the point is, sometimes even we evangelical believers think that, well, I'm a Christian because I believe. No, you're a Christian because God regenerated you. The first thing you did is believe. But you're not a Christian because you did something, because you could do nothing. God had to do it all. And see, when God does it all, He gets all the credit. So when you go to heaven, everybody's there for the same reason. God did it. And that, that removes, and this is the interesting thing, what does that remove from the equation? Any ability you have. Totally. You don't have to have a certain level of education to be a Christian. You don't have to have a certain level of money. Anything, none of that matters. Because it's God who does the work. It's God who saves. When the man comes to Jesus about being the Spirit, and he says, all you have to do is believe, Jesus says this to the man, and he says, Lord, I believe, God, help my unbelief. And right. Jesus honors that. I think it's a part of our flesh that we will doubt. I think that's one of Satan's most key things that he uses. I think it's one of the fiery darts of the wicked one, is, is the dart of doubt. So it's natural. But ultimately, you know in your mind you believe, but there's always that something inside you that's saying, but what if? But what if, but if you take that to God and just lay it out there and say, yeah. God, I know that this one thing is nagging me. Do you just take it? It mm -hmm. makes it so much easier to know that he's going to honor it. Vance Havner, who's a, who's a wonderful saint, saint of the, he's dead now. He died in 1985. But uh, I, I still pull out his tapes. They're part of what I call my spiritual tune-up kit. You know, every once in a while, I just pull them out. I've listened to them probably dozens of times. But every time I listen to them, I just... He's just that kind of speaker. Um, but he said, you know, he, said, I, he, he struggled with that. And finally he concluded, look, if I could believe any more than I believe now, I would. I mean, I'm believing as, as much as I can believe. And if I could believe more, I, I, would, I would do that. And I, I think that goes along with like what Joel Stahl said. Um, believe as best you can and ask God to help you with those little nagging doubts. You know, and we all have them. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have them sometimes. We all do. Yeah, I think a lot of people still believe 
that they were something who was going to And see, the point is, if you didn't, that helps that doubt a little bit because you realize. See, if you contributed to your salvation, you could contribute to your unsalvation, couldn't you? All right. Because when I'm dirty and filthy, I'm ashamed. Yeah. You know, you tell the other folks. It's interesting. Somebody. Yeah. I'm like, I'm ashamed. You know, I'm Somebody like, comes to me and says, you know, I'm really convicted over this sin. You know, I don't think I'm a Christian. I say, well, let's see now. If you were not a Christian, would you be convicted about the sin? Probably not. We didn't even know what happened. Probably not. For we, verse 10, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what it says. God saved us. God exalted us. God made us a trophy in heaven. And then God created us to do what? Good works. Don't fall into the trap saying, look, I'm a Christian. I can live any way I want. No, you can't. You show me someone who says, look, I'm a Christian. I'm in. It doesn't matter what I do. God will forgive me anyways. I'll show you person A who doesn't understand God's forgiveness or B is not a Christian at all. God did not save you and redeem you and pull you out of the slime pit for you to dive back in when he turns his back. God saved you to glorify. Now, how do I glorify God when I'm, I, and there's no difference between me and one of these people? How do you do that? You can't. You bring, you, the opposite, you bring dishonor. You bring dishonor to God. You know, you, you're, you, you're too... And see, I, th- I think the other thing is that, is that the mentality of, of the American culture is you do your thing and I'll do my thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right? I mean, that, that's the mentality. You need to understand that what you do affects me as a Christian. And what I do affects you. You don't sin in and of yourself. I remember MacArthur talked about the time he's went to prison, he preached in prison, and this guy wanted to talk to him, and he said, boy, you know, I listen to your messages all the time, you know, I, I get your study guides and all that, and John said, well, what are you in here for? And he said, well, you know, I have a problem, I write bad checks a lot. And he said, well, why do you quit telling people you're a Christian? He said, well, that's not the very user-friendly thing to do. Well, wait a minute, the guy claimed to be one thing, he's living like the other thing, and what is that doing to the name of Christ? By the way, that's what it means to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You're making God look bad. And think about it. When you sin, you make God look bad. You make God look bad. God prepared us to walk in good works. And the idea of walk there is your lifestyle, your manner of life. It's not, you know, every once in a while you accidentally do a good thing. Your entire manner of life should be one of constant good works. It should be. That should be what characterizes you. Um, i, I got to tell you this little story because it's just really, you know, it, it really, it, it was really interesting and it really illustrates this point so well. And that is, I think all of you know my wife. She's the one with the little hearing ear dog. She comes in here after class. And um, she, uh, I was talking to one of her friends. 
and uh, the Teeter, Brenda Teeters, who goes to church here, and they bring their kids over on Monday nights usually, and they Donna watch them for two or three hours, you know, while Brenda's off doing whatever she does, Weight Watchers or something. And Donna watches the kids. Well, a couple of weeks ago, they were having a discussion on sin, and, and, and one of their daughters, who's about 13 or 14 years old, said, said she didn't think Donna ever sinned, my wife. And they're trying to figure out what sin my wife did. I mean, these are kids, you know. And she said, you know, every time I'm over there, you know, Donna's never lost her temper at us. She's never yelled at us. She reads her Bible. My wife reads the Bible every year. Um, she prays all the time. I mean, she, she's just the nicest person in the world. We don't think Donna sins. You know, Brenda was trying to help them understand, you know, everybody sins, you know. But they just couldn't for the life of them figure out what in the world my wife would do that was sinful. And they finally concluded that she didn't recycle plastics. That was the big thing because they recycle and, you know. But, but I, I just want to point that out. I want to illustrate that, that, that that's what it means to let your light shine before men. I'll tell you what, Donna is a sinner. All right. And, um, you know, she has, she does those things. There's, there's times she's cranky. Now, I also told Brenda Teeters one time that my wife was cranky with me, and she called me a liar and wanted to know what I did to hurt Donna. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm just, ta I just want to illustrate something very clearly that, that you can. It's possible for you to let your light shine before men. That when they look at you, they say, "Boy, there's something very different about them." <clears throat> That's what it means when God prepared you to do good deeds. When somebody looks at you, do they, do they see the goodness and the kindness and the compassion of Christ and the godly character? Is that what hits them? Is that what comes to their mind? That's what should come to their mind. That's why, that's why he saved you. To be like him. Because when we sin, we make God look bad. Then in verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that you... And Paul turns now and discusses the main theme of his book, which goes through uh, chapter 3. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is now talking, going to be talking about the church. And he wants to make a distinction between what the Jews had an idea of what the church was and what God had ordained the church to be. And what he's doing, he's drawing a contrast from the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, as a Gentile, under the Mosaic Law, how did you become right with God? How, what was required for you to partake of God's covenant blessings of Israel? You had to be circumcised. You had to go under the Mosaic Law. Now understand that was not... Understand something here. And this is what we need to understand. That was not to make you redeemed. There's a difference. Distinction. That was to make you part of God's covenant people. Were all of God's covenant people redeemed? No. 
No, they weren't. But being part of God's covenant people had some blessings associated with it, didn't it? I mean, you had God's blessing. You had the word. You had access to the word. You, you knew what God required. And being part of God's covenant people exposed you to the message of grace and faith. And what Paul is saying here is that as Gentiles, the way you were... By the way, when God... God always deals dealt in the Old Testament through His covenants with men. And the Old Covenant was just one of those covenants. It did not save you, but it was just a way for Israel to distinct, distinguish itself from all the other nations around it. But being a Jew did not automatically make you in with God. See, that was the problem that the Jews came up with. In, in Romans 2, Paul hits that. He says, you think that because you're a Jew and because you're circumcised and because you have the law, you're in. Well, let me tell you, not all Israel, there are not all Israel who is of Israel. How are you part of the true Israel? By faith. And we saw that in Galatians as well. It's always been that way. But being part of God's covenant people had certain blessings, mainly exposure to the truth. We had the truth exposed to us. We, 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 we had. In the old covenant, you would have had the truth. You'd been part of God's covenant people. And he says that the Gentiles... Prior to Christ, what were they? Well, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers. They were outside the covenant. Not only that, uh, they had no hope and they were without God. Outside of God's covenant people. How many Gentiles in the Old Testament were redeemed? After the establishment of the Mosaic Law. Not many. Rahab, um, Ruth, maybe Nebuchadnezzar, certainly not a lot. The point that God is making here is that in the Old Testament, God had a covenant. By the way, every one of God's covenants were with whom? Israel. Did you know that? Did you know, did you know that the new covenant God made of which we are a part of is really a covenant God gave to Israel? And we just happened to get in on the blessings? That's what Romans 11 says. You are grafted in as a wild olive branch. God made the, old, the, the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 31, not to Gentiles, but to Israel. And there was a provision in that new covenant for all nations to come before God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Under the old covenant, we were strangers from God as Gentiles because we were outside of God's covenant people. But now, 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Those of you who were outside the covenant now are brought near by the blood of Christ. So in the new covenant, God does not work through exclusively the Jewish nation. Rather, he now works through, and that's what Paul's getting at, through his covenant people, the church. And the church is not comprised of Jews, but of all nations. Jew and Gentile alike. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. Both what? Both Jew and Gentile. One. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. 
um, that's most likely a reference to the Jewish temple. If you were to go um, to Israel in those days, and, and were to, and I'm not much of an artist or anything by a stretch of the imagination, but you have the Temple Mount, you of course would have the temple itself here, and here's the Holy of Holies, and here's the holy place, and then what you would have here is the courtyard of the priests, and then you'd have the courtyard of Israel, and I'm, I'm trying to remember this crowd of the women, and then out here there was a wall, and there were two gates in the wall, and out here is called the court of the Gentiles. And in the old covenant, as a Gentile, you were allowed to get to here. If you were a woman of Israel, you were allowed to get to here. If you were a man, you were allowed here. And if you were a priest, you were allowed there. If you were a high priest, you were allowed there. But what they had on this wall right here is two large bronze plaques. In fact, they dug one of them up. They got one. They got one of these large bronze plates. And it says, if you are a Gentile and you go beyond this point, you're responsible for your own death. And the interesting thing is that Roman, the Roman Empire and every conquered nation that they took over, they prohibited that nation from exercising the death penalty. Rome reserved that for themselves. They said they are the only ones who are allowed to put criminals to death. Now, as a nation, you could turn someone over to the Roman authorities for execution, but you could not execute them. All right? Except... There was one exception in their entire empire. And that was made right there. If you walked inside there, you were dead as a Gentile. Why did they support that? As a, as a, um, as deference to the Jewish faith. One of the things they had, for example, um, they required off, uh, libations and oaths to be made to the emperor. But for the Jews, what they allowed them to do is offer a sacrifice twice a day for the Roman Emperor. And as a Jew, you did not have to take part in the pagan practices required by all the other pagans in the Roman Empire. I mean, you gotta understand, you know, the Romans were pretty ruthless, but, you know, they tried to, you know, to, to take consideration of, of the nations that they conquered. You know, they were not just totally heartless about the thing. But um, what Paul is saying is in Christ, what happens? This wall comes down. And there's no more any separation. He has taken down the middle wall of partition between us. And he's made us one in Christ. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He broke down the middle wall, even all of those ordinances of commandments, and that's the whole sacrificial ceremonial system, was abolished. And he broke down that wall of separation and made us one. Made one new man. And then he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off Gentiles and to those who are near Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What Christ did in the new covenant, all right, he did a lot of things. You got to understand. 
He broke down this wall here, didn't he? What other wall did he break down? The veil was rent in two from top to bottom. See, in the Old Testament, how did you as a Jew approach God? Through this priest. You were to go in through here. In the New Covenant, how do you approach Christ? You go directly. He broke down this wall of partition. Now, why did God do this? Got separation. What was he trying to illustrate? Well, I mean, God knew Christ was coming, right? I mean, God knew the whole thing. Why did Christ? Why did God design this whole sacrificial ceremonial junk they had to do? So you'd understand it. It was a big picture book. That's all. It's just a big picture book. God was trying to make a point in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, he's trying to make a point that, number one, you're awfully bad. He is awfully holy, and if you want to come to me, here's how you do it. You don't just come any willy-nilly way you feel like it. And remember what happened to Aaron's sons who decided to offer strange fire before the Lord. What did God do? Smote him and killed him. All right. And you say, well, that was pretty nasty of God to do that. No, God's trying to make a point. All right. Now, now here's, 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 I think, our problem today. In the church, we don't offer sacrifices. We haven't had to go through the ceremonial system. We have direct access to God. We can go to God at any time and talk to him. What have we lost? Reverence. The reverence and respect that Israel had. You've lost it. They didn't even use his name. They came up with a substitute name because they didn't want to speak it. Contrast that today with the average guy on the docks. He uses the name of God every other statement. Well, it's Kenneth Copeland. He's a heretic to start out with. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, Kenneth Copeland has he has some severe theological problems. Yeah. But, yeah. That's nice. Uh, it was actually, somebody asked John McCarthy, what do you think of Copeland hanging? Oh, they're false prophets. Okay, next question. You know, I mean, it's... But, but the whole point, I think the point here that, that, that I see, and, and I really have to stop and ask myself sometimes, is am I so familiar with God that he's no longer the consuming fire of Hebrews chapter 13? I mean, he's just so familiar that I, I don't see him as the awesome God that he is. Now you see it. You just see things around you. Well, what I'm saying is, is our familiarity with God causes us to lose reverence that we should have for him. Right. I think the thing that becomes so compromised in today's society, we've been, you know, become so compromised in our churches, in our teaching, preaching, situation, all you see is not prosperity. Well, I'm thinking of holiness. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament is very clear. If you approach God on your terms, 
It was not a meaningful experience. It was not a meaningful experience. You approached God on the terms that he laid out that you would approach him on. He told you how to approach him. You did it that way. Um, today, I think we have a lot of people in churches. We're so. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we are so familiar with God as our redeemer, as our friend, as our savior, that we forget he's God. All right. Um, and, and Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews 12 and 13. He says, you know, when you look back at the Old Covenant, if you approach the mountain, by the way, in the Old Covenant, when God gave the law at Sinai, if you touched the mountain, what would happen? You killed. You were to be killed. So they, they, you were to be killed. Um, if an animal touched the mountain, what was happening? Animal. Kill it. All right. Um, and, and God's trying to make a point that I am, I am holy. And he made the point so well that the people were afraid. You know, they told Moses, you go talk to God. If we talk to God, we've had it. You go. Talk to God. Um, and you tell us what he says. We don't want to get close to the thunder and the fire and the lightning and the smoke. But today we don't have any thunder and lightning and smoke. God's just our buddy. Right. So you have these yo-yos, you know, to get on TV and say, yeah, God and I talked last night about this. And he wanted to know what I thought I should do about the world. And, all. and you know, it's just, it's a total, it's taking the name of the Lord your God in vain because God is holy. And any one of us that would find ourselves in God's presence would not be slapping high fives and congratulating him and, you know, hey, buddy, how you doing? We'd be on our face and he'd be picked up by the holy angels. Um, I, you know, I, I often think about that. Have I lost the awe of God? And, and I think the answer is in, in most churches, yeah, we, we have. The same God that someday is going to welcome you into heaven is the same God that's going to condemn the bulk of humanity to the lake of fire. He's not a different God. It's the same God. And we got we to get, we got to think of him in those terms. And, and you know, I, I want to say that I am, I am, I am going to be eternally grateful for God's grace. And boy, I never want to lose sight of his grace. But God is a God of wrath. God is a God of love, but God is a God of wrath. And the same God, again, that's going to welcome us into heaven, is going to reward us and, and rejoices over our salvation, is going to hold us up forever as a trophy, is the same God that's going to condemn mostly, probably 90% or higher of humanity to the lake of fire forever. No different God. He's a God of wrath. Now, that doesn't mean you, know, you can't go around afraid, definitely afraid to talk to God because God wants you to come into his presence, right? I mean, he wants you to talk to him. He, he welcomes you. I'm his child. But I need to understand that, yeah, I'm his child, but he's still God. And as God, he deserves my reverence and my awe and my respect, and I can't treat him as just my buddy. He's not my pal. That's the same thing parents would say. Parents have a relationship or a mother and a daughter over best buddies. Mm -hmm. 
God has broken down the wall of partition. He has given us access, but we need to realize that our access is only there because of what Christ has done. And I think we also need to realize that, quite honestly, if it wasn't for Christ, none of us could stand in God's presence. Yeah. Now, therefore, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As Gentiles, you've been brought right in and made part of God's family, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is one of the rich metaphors here of the Christian church. There's a lot of metaphors for the church in the Bible. Anybody want to try? Give me some of them. Bride and the groom. Um, that, that's a very rich metaphor. What's another one? There's about six of these. The body. Body and head, I guess. What's another one? Vine in the branches. It's another one. It's right here. A building, right? A building, a holy temple where... What's one in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd and sheep. And there's another one I can't remember offhand what it is. There's a lot of metaphors for the body of Christ. And, and there is one more. I, I know there's about six of these. Um, in Ephesians, what do we have? We have the bride and the groom, the body of Christ. We have a building of God. Three of the major metaphors for the church are right here in the book of Ephesians. One of them is a building of God. And as a building, a metaphor, as a body, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So if that statement is made, where would you assume the apostles and prophets to appear? The foundation. The foundation. And someone says you don't put the foundation on the 40th floor. Do you have apostles and prophets today in the New Testament sense? No. Not in the New Testament sense. Because the foundation of the church was the apostles and the prophets. That was the foundation. And who was the chief cornerstone? Christ. All right. And it says here, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are a brick in God's building. You're a brick. You're a member of that building of God. And it says we are built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. As a body, we are built together into a holy temple, a building of God. And uh, this, this is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we're going to find out in Ephesians 4 more about this whole notion of the foundation. And even in Peter, by the way, this, this metaphor is also in Peter. Um, the building of God is in Peter. Okay. We are building of God. Um, let's see where I'm at in the tape. Let's go ahead and take a break at this point, and we'll come back and knock off chapter 3. Three. Um, Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I'm not going to spend a real long amount of time in here because I, I want to get through to 4, um, but I, I think we need to go through chapter 3 a little bit to understand what Paul means when he talks about this mystery. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace, of, of the grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I now I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul here is talking about, there's, there's a lot in here, and he's, he's basically talking about his theology, his ministry, what God has given to him, and what God has revealed to Paul, and not only to Paul, but to the other apostles and prophets, he's revealed a mystery. And we briefly talked about mystery last week. And we'll go back and just mention it again, that a mystery is not a, a eerie whodunit kind of thing. Rather, it's something that has not been revealed, but now is. All right? Now, pretend you've never read the New Testament. Pretend you never, you, you never read it. And all you knew was the Old Testament. Do you find the church in the Old Testament? The body of Christ as we know it. No. It's not there. Now unless you're a covenant theologian, which they believe it is there because we are Israel. They got a warped understanding. But um, no, the church isn't in the Old Testament. Now, it is there in some really veiled references. For example, it talks about uh, uh, being a light to the Gentiles, which by inference, if you're a light to a Gentile, then Gentiles can be brought to the light. Um, it, uh, in, the, in the New Covenant, it talks about God taking the, writing the law in your hearts, and in there there's a hint of a more universal application apart from just the Jew. But as a clear understanding of, of the church, a clear comprehensive understanding, it's not there. It's just not there anywhere. It's a mystery. Now, was that was the church plan B? No, it was always plan A. God doesn't have plan Bs. Um, yeah, God does not always have, you know, we, when, we, when we design things, we have a contingency and a backup and a backup to the contingency and, you know, secondary systems and tertiary systems. No, God has only one plan. And uh, it was always planned from eternity past that he would work through the Gentiles. All right, now here's a question. When Jesus Christ came and preached the gospel of the kingdom, what gospel was that? The gospel he preached. He said he preached the gospel of the kingdom. What was that gospel? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. Christ did not preach death, burial, and crucifixion of himself. Um, the good news was the good news that the king has arrived and God was offering the kingdom to Israel. Was that a bona fide offer? Was God's offer to Israel of the kingdom a bona fide, valid offer? Yes. Absolutely it was. Now what did they do? 
Now, is that part of God's plan? Yeah. Don't try to figure it out. Really, don't, don't try to figure it out. You're not going to figure that out. But it was part of God's sovereign plan. God made a bona fide offer to Israel. Now, now here, this will really get you going tonight. God's offer of salvation to the lost, is it a bona fide offer? Yes. yes. Will they accept it? No. But it's a bona fide offer. All right, it's not a bogus offer. God's offer of the kingdom of Israel was a bona fide offer. Had Israel repented, had Israel accepted Christ as their Messiah, there would not have been a church age. There would have been the kingdom. But they did not. And that was all part of God's sovereign, eternal plan. But here's the point, here's, quite, here's the issue. When did God tell us about that plan? When did we find out about the church? After he'd risen. See, and it's interesting, you know, when Christ, uh, in Acts chapter 1, what did the disciples ask Christ before he went back to heaven? Yeah, you're going to start the kingdom now? Because, I mean, that was their mentality. And Christ says, it's not up to you to know the times or the seasons, but I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.